want to turn to 2 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians chapter number 2, and we will continue our study in 2 Thessalonians, and we've reached really the heart of the book. It's the central theme, it's the, the main motivation that's on Paul's heart as he writes this epistle, this letter to the church at Thessalonica, a church that he had planted and he had started not too many days prior to the writing of this letter. He had heard about some of the things that were going on there in the city of Thessalonica, and he writes from the city of Corinth, and specifically now he's going to get into the heart of what he, what he needs to deal with, the subject matter that has brought him to writing this letter. In this passage, you will clearly see something. And that something is is simply this. You will see the implications of your eschatology. And that title is not just chosen because there's big words in it. And it sounded funny, and I really wanted to make the guys typing in the title on the live stream nervous to make sure they spelled it correctly. Are there any implications to our eschatology? Well, first we have to say, what in the world is eschatology? Well, eschatology is the doctrine of what the Bible teaches regarding the end times and future events. What has God told us? What is going to take place? And how that's all going to play out, that is eschatology. It is what we believe about what is coming. What we believe about what what is going to happen in the future and God's plan for bringing time to a close and, and, and bringing in eternity. Is your eschatology really all that important? Is what you believe, what you think to be true regarding how all this is going to take place, is it really all that important? Are there implications? Now we could take a historical look And see very plainly that in history, throughout history, since the time of Christ, that this issue of eschatology has enormous implications. In fact, it costs millions of people their lives through, if you know anything about our Baptist history. So we know there's implications historically, but are there any implications for us today? You know, like where we really live. Like your day tomorrow and, and how you approach... Uh, things that are going to happen tomorrow and, 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 and the news that you might hear uh, this next week. Are there any implications? Is there any importance to what you believe about what's going to happen? And it could be tomorrow. It could be years and years and years in the future. We really don't know when all of this is going to take place, although we do know that it is coming. It is going to take place. Does it have an impact on our lives today And I think in this passage you will plainly and clearly see that the answer to that question is an emphatic yes. It matters what you believe. That is why Paul is writing this text. Because it mattered to him, and he believed it mattered to the believers in Thessalonica. It mattered that they believed the right thing. And you're actually going to see that some of them were beginning to believe the wrong thing. Thing. And so he's writing to correct that. And we'll see through this example that there are serious ramifications not only for them, but for us as well in our, the present day that we live in today. So look there at 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, or sorry, chapter 2, now and starting in verse 1 of chapter 2. He writes, Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and by our gathering together unto him, that ye be not soon shaken in mind, or be troubled neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letter as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed the son of perdition." Who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he, as God, sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Remember ye not that 
When I was yet with you, I told you these things. And now you know what withholdeth that he might be revealed in his time. For the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Only he who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. And then shall that wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. Even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish because they receive not the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this cause, God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie, that they all might be damned who believed not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Heavenly Father, would you guide and direct tonight, or we know there is a lot of content in, this, in these verses. And Lord, I pray that we would not get lost necessarily in the, in the details But I pray that you'd give us your perspective as we consider how important it is that we believe the right thing, that we believe what you say and the impact that that has on our lives. I pray that you would teach us, help correct our understanding, and help us understand what you want us to do with what we see here in front of us tonight. Help me, dear Lord, to say those things that you want me to say and use this time to Um, to work your perfect will in each of our lives. And we ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The implications of your eschatology. There are two very, very critical and important implications. We'll develop these as we go along digging into this passage. So uh, sit tight on that. We'll, We'll kind of open that up as we get there. But first of all, let's kind of walk through the passage and, and understand what is being spoken of, uh, what is Paul laying out regarding these end time events that he is speaking of, and what do we need to believe as far as what's going to take place. So first of all, I want you to see uh, the reminder of a settling truth. You'll notice that this section is ended in verse 5 where, where Paul asks them, don't you remember? Remember when I was with you, I laid all of this out for you. I told you what was going to happen. Hearken back, remember to that class, that sermon, that lesson that I taught. Remember what I taught you. And if you'll remember what I taught you, it will settle you. There's the basis of this reminder he gives in verse number one. He says, I beseech you, I'm asking, I'm begging you, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together with him. So Paul is asking them, he's begging them, he's entreating them, and the basis of that request, the basis of that reminder, is the coming of Jesus Christ. This is the the coming of, of Christ, is the future visible return from heaven of Jesus for the final judgment and setting up of his earthly kingdom. The Bible promises that one day Jesus will return to this earth. And in his return to this earth, he will judge wickedness, he will judge unrighteousness, and he will set up an earthly kingdom to fulfill all of the promises that we read in the Old Testament to his people, the nation of Israel, during a period of time that we often call the the millennium. That's his earthly kingdom. And that is what is described for us in the Bible when we read this phrase, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so he says, I'm asking you, based on the truth that Jesus is coming, based on the truth that he is going to set up his future earthly kingdom, I'm begging you on that basis, and I'm also begging you on the basis of our gathering together unto him. Boy, this is a wonderful truth. That idea of gathering together under him is when all of his who belong to him are assembled together, all together, in one place. And we realize when this event will take place, he spoke of it in his first letter to the Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 and 17, those beloved verses, the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. One day we're going to be gathered together. 
I love how the Old Testament speaks of this when it, it talks about the, the, the Old Testament saints reaching the end of their lives. And it speaks of their, their passing, their deaths, as being gathered together with those that have gone before. And of course, the older that we get, the more individuals that we can say in our minds, I remember. I remember so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so. And the list seems to grow longer and longer, does it not, of people that we say, we're going to see them on the other side. There's going to be a gathering together one day. There's going to be a time in which all of the, the saints of God will be gathered. And of course, here in this passage in 1 Thessalonians 4, it speaks of Jesus not quite coming to this earth, but coming in the skies. And one day, if you are saved, do you know the Lord is your Savior? You've been born again. You've been washed in the blood of the Lamb. You know that you're saved. You're going to be gathered together in the clouds with Him and with all the other saints. We'll all be in one place, and what a wonderful time that will be. And so Paul says, I, I'm asking you, I'm beseeching you, based on based on the validity, based on the truth, based on the, 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 the settled hope that we have that Jesus is coming again. Jesus will return and set things right. Jesus will return and, and set up His kingdom on this earth. Jesus will come in the clouds and we'll be gathered together with Him. We're looking forward to that day. So I'm reminding you of the importance of both of those truths. And then I'm asking in verse number 2, Based on that, that she be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled. These are the ramifications of this reminder. You notice he describes two, we could call them emotions, emotional responses to what was going on in the church at Thessalonica. Paul had heard, and the reason why he had to tell them not to be shaken and not to be troubled, as he had heard that this is exactly what was taking place. That there were people in the church who were, who were shaken, and they were soon shaken. They were, this, the word shaken means that they were agitated. They were quickly agitated. The idea of being tossed and moved to and fro. Might use the phrase, you know, it sent you reeling. And what they had heard, what they were listening to, the, the truths that were being preached were, were sending them reeling. They were knocking them for a loop. They, they, were, they were taking the wind out of their sails. It was taking the breath out of their lungs. They were soon shaken and tossed about by some truths that didn't quite align with what Paul had told them. They were agitated and they were also alarmed. And that's this idea of being troubled. And trouble to a point where you cry out. It's the clamor of alarm. It's, it's that, that person who you know, hides around the corner and jumps out and, whoa, whoa. You, it, you audibly, there's, there is an expression of alarm. This is where these people were. They were agitated and alarmed by what they were hearing. And it's right here that we, we, we come face to face with this First critical truth, the implications of our eschatology. And it is this, what you believe will happen in the future has an enormous impact on how you respond to what is happening in the present. This is the implications of your eschatology. What you believe will happen in the future has a tremendous impact on how you respond to what is happening in the present. That's why Paul is writing to correct their understanding because their misunderstanding of what was going to happen in the future was having a great impact on, what was, on, on their emotional response to what was happening in the present. What I believe and what you believe about the future will dictate what you do in the present. In fact, one of the ways that you can, that you can uh, determine what do I truly believe is by looking at what you are doing in the present. What you're doing in the present indicates what you really believe. Amen. Some people say, well, I, I believe that. Well, I believe that. Does it have any impact on your life? Well, no. Then do you really believe it? Mm, you might want to believe it. You might, uh, you might be close to believing it, but if it doesn't have an impact on your life, you don't really believe it. The opposite is also true. What you believe then about what's going to take place in the future will dictate 
even your emotional response to difficulties in the present. Here you see, the emotional response of the people was dictated by the fact that they misunderstood what was going on. They misunderstood what was going to take place. There's some big implications to what we believe that's here. Let's keep that thought in mind and move on to the reason for this reminder. Why is Paul writing? Well, he says that you be not soon shaken in mind or troubled, neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letter as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. Now, we need to understand something, and I don't want to lose you here because this is a little bit detailed, but it's important. Because you might read something regarding specifically this verse and that phrase, the day of Christ. What exactly is the day of Christ? Well, that phrase, that term, is only used two other times in the New Testament, both of which are in the the epistle to the Philippians. Um, But specifically, the day of Christ is is an event that takes place in heaven. It's referred to as the, the, the time of rewards for the believers at the judgment seat of Christ and the revelry of the rejoicing that's going to take place at the marriage supper of the Lamb. So in other words, there is the event that we are looking forward to next. That is the gathering together. That is the rapture. Immediately following that, when we are raptured, we, we go back with the Lord Jesus Christ to heaven. We're looking forward to the judgment. Now, this judgment isn't a condemnation judgment. This is a judgment whereby we receive the rewards done here on this earth for the cause of Christ. This is what Paul referred to as the uh, a building gold, silver, and precious stones on the foundation of Christ versus you know wood, hay, and stubble. The things that we do for Christ today, we can expect, and God tells us, Uh, that we will be rewarded for those things. The crowns will be given at this point. It will be a great uh, time of celebration as we realize the fruit of our labors for Christ. Along with that, there is the marriage supper of the Lamb, which is the, 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 the bride, the Lord's church, the marriage to the Lord Jesus Christ, and all the spectators that will be there watching that. It will be a wonderful and beautiful time of revelry and rejoicing. All of that is encompassed in the day of Christ. There's also another term that you'll see in your Bibles, and that is another phrase, and that is the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is different than the day of Christ. The day of the Lord is on the earth, while the day of Christ is in heaven. The day of the Lord is not a specific sort of event, a one-time event, but is actually a period of time, and that period of time is an extreme judgment, an extreme punishment that is spoken of in in prophecy, spoken of in the book of Revelation, and really it is the focus of the rest of what Paul is going to write. Now, this is why I'm, I'm trying to explain this to you, because if you crack a commentary, if you probably even look, if you have a study Bible and you're in the habit of reading some of the notes that were there, just about every commentary and almost every uh, um, a study Bible writer will say, well, this this day of Christ, this phrase here, uh, here in, uh, in verse, number, uh, verse number two is, is improperly translated. They made a mistake. There's a mistake in your Bible. It should say the day of the Lord. And uh, I had read that somewhere, you know, and sure enough, I looked in all of my commentaries and sure, every single one, this is a mistake. It's a mistranslation. Just, just go ahead and right now, get a piece of, uh, get, get your pen out, get a pencil out and just scratch that out and make sure you change it to the day of the Lord. Go ahead and fix that mistake. I got a problem with that. I got a big problem with that. Okay, so how do we reconcile those things? Well, think about the the sequence of events real quickly. While these two days, the day of Christ and the day of the Lord, are are two distinct events, these events are concurrent with each other. Meaning, after the rapture, on this earth, the day of the Lord is taking place, while at the same time in heaven, the day of Christ is taking place. So these two events are, are concurrent with each other. Once the rapture takes place... The day of Christ is at hand. It's the very next thing that will take place while the day of the Lord is at hand here on the earth. In other words, the belief that, that uh, was, was circulating among the people of Thessalonica 
was that the gathering together, the rapture, had already taken place and therefore the day of Christ in heaven was at hand and these believers, they they were missing out. It was happening without them. They were on the outside looking in. Here's all everyone else is enjoying in heaven. We got left behind. God forgot about us is kind of the implication that's here. Now, I don't know why. It's a pretty easy explanation. I don't know why we defaulted to the Bible's wrong and you need to correct it versus just a simple explanation like that. I'm not sure, but you can have your own determinations regarding that. So what Paul's going to go on to develop then is that if you, if, if you missed the rapture and you've been left behind, then you would already see the availings of the events that he's going to talk about. And his point is, you don't see these things taking place yet. Therefore, let me assure you that you did not miss the rapture. God did not forget about you. And so that's what he's writing about. He's writing to correct these things. Now, where did this this erroneous suggestion even come from? Where, Where did this idea come from that somehow they missed the rapture? Well, he tells us there in verse 2 that this idea... Uh, was propagated by those who claimed to have some sort of spirit. This is the spirit of revelation. And, of course, this uh, was one of the the sign gifts uh, during the early church before the Word of God was completed. Those who received some special revelation from God, they would say, "I, I received a spirit, and here's what the spirit says. You've missed the rapture. I don't know how, the, how you conclude that. Good luck for you. I, I, I don't know how, you know, it's terrible news. But uh, there's this spirit. I receive this spirit that this is what's going to take place. And of course, 2 Thessalonians was the second epistle to be written in all the New Testament. They didn't have necessarily 1 John chapter 4 and verse 1. We have it. Because we need to beware to believe not every spirit. But try the spirits whether they are of God. Because there's many false prophets that are gone out into the world. There's a lot of spirits out there. There's a lot of things that you could listen to that might sound rather convincing, might sound compelling, but because they don't match up with the truth that you already know, the truth that you've seen for yourself in the Scriptures, those spirits are not coming from God. They're coming from somewhere else. So there were those who claimed to have this spirit. There are those who claim to have a word from God, a revelation from God. I've received a word from the Lord. What Paul says is not going to happen. Here's what's really happening. You've missed the rapture and it's going to happen later, not now. The tribulation that you're dealing with, the trouble, and we talked about that uh, as we've gone through this study, they were going through great difficulty. They were experiencing tribulation. What, What was being said is that tribulation that we're experiencing right now, this is the great tribulation. This is really bad. But it wasn't true. It wasn't a word from God. Even worse than that, and how devious this is, that somebody forged a letter. They forged a letter from Paul and Silas and Timothy, maybe signed it with their names, I don't know. See, this is an an epistle, this is from Paul himself, and he's backing this up. He's telling you that uh, to go ahead and believe everything that I'm telling you, that you've missed the rapture and you're you're in the tribulation. That's what you're experiencing right now. God has forgotten about you. That's that's a devious thing. Who would do such a thing? Well, we have an enemy who loves to deceive. And of course, this is what this is all about. We don't really need to get into all of that. The point is, there was some fakery and forgery going on. And the sad part about this is that the Thessalonians didn't necessarily, they weren't able to identify the forgery when they saw it. Some of them were beginning to buy into it. Some of them were beginning to believe it. And so he launches in, in verse number three, to a bit of a review. It's review time. All right, let me go through, this is Paul speaking, let me go through what I told you. Let me re- let's, let's have a review lesson and go through the highlights of what I taught Because this is important, and there are implications. And if you don't believe the right thing, guess what's going to happen? You're going to be shaken and troubled. So let's make sure we believe the right thing. Verse 3, let no man deceive you. There's that deception. 
Let no man deceive you by any means. For that day shall not come except there come a falling away first. And that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. And then he's going to go through all the events that take place. So there's a review. Don't let anyone deceive you. They were in danger of being carried away with some of this bad doctrine, carried away from the truth. He mentions, though, that first of all, what needs to take place, the the very next event that, that they're looking for, that day, the day of Christ, is not going to happen until there be a falling away. And that term falling away, it's an interesting term. The the Greek word is apostasia, which that sounds familiar, right? The the word we use today, apostasy. It has the idea of a a widespread worldwide departure. And that's the closest synonym to this idea of apostasy. It's a departure. It's a defection. It's a forsaking of the truth. In other words, Right before the rapture takes place, in the the period of time leading up to the gathering together, there will be a departure from the truth. Jesus spoke about it in Luke chapter 18 and verse 8. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Now we know we have the promise of the Lord Jesus Christ that the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. There will be true believers. There will be true churches. But they will be small in number. They will be a minority. Paul wrote to Timothy about this in 1 Timothy 4, verses 1 and 2. It says, Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times shall, or some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. And he goes on and on to describe what things will be like. And what Paul is saying is, this is what's going to happen. This is what is coming. There's going to be a falling away. And and, and following that in that period of time, the falling away comes first. And following that, there is a sequence of events largely regarding this man who was introduced to us in verse number three, the man of sin, the son of perdition. There's going to be a revelation of this man. There's going to be an uncovering, an unveiling, a making known of who this is. Revelation Chapter 6, verses 1 and 2 speaks of it this way. It says, when I, and, and I saw when the Lamb opened the seals, and I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder. And one of the four beasts saying, Come and see. And I saw, behold, a white horse. And he that sat on him had a bow. And a crown was given unto him. And he went forth conquering and to conquer. And that verse describes <clears throat> excuse me, the, the revelation, the unveiling of this man of sin. He's one who comes as... As Brother Hammett spoke of last week in our evening service, he's one who comes on a white horse promising peace. He's got a a bow, but he doesn't have any arrows. He's the one promising that he's going to bring in the the next utopia, bring peace to this world, and he's going to generate a a, a rather uh, large following of himself. He's going to be revealed. In other words, the sequence of events is ramping up to that time. There is the falling away. Then there is the catching away of the church in the rapture. And then there is the unveiling, the opening up, the uncovering, making known of who this man of sin really is. And of course, we use the term antichrist. Where does that come from? Well, mostly from 1 John 2, verse 18, where John tells us that it is the last time. And ye have heard that antichrist shall come. Even now there are many antichrists, whereby we know that it is the last time. So there will be a man coming, there will be a character coming, a person coming, who is known as the Antichrist. We're introduced here in our text to a little bit about who he is. Who is this Antichrist? You notice all the names that, this, that is in this text. There is the man of sin. He's described as the man of sin in... Uh, Let's see, was that uh, verse number, number, number five? Three, sorry. Yeah, I got, I got skipped ahead there. Yeah, verse number three. He is described as the man of sin in verse three. The very embodiment of sin. In other words, when you, when you look at him, he is the embodiment of sin. That's what this idea is, the, the man of sin. He's also called in verse three, the son of perdition or the son of destruction. 
And that describes his end of what's going to take place uh, uh, with his end and where he's going to lead to. Verse 8 uses the title, the term, that wicked or that wicked one, the, the, the lawless one, the departing from the law. This is who this man is. This is his identity. In verse 4, it describes what he's going to do. He said, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. What will this man do? What will this Antichrist do? Well, he'll be opposing and exalting. That term opposing is interesting because it's the same word that's, that's also translated the adversary. The word Satan, the name Satan. This man will be allied to Satan and he'll do the job of Satan. And that is resisting all that is ungodly. Just like we have, the, our adversary is Satan today, and he resists all that is godly within us, this man will do the very same thing, but in a public manner, and in a manner uh, that will affect many that are following him. He's, he's opposing, and he's also exalting. He's a very proud and haughty man. He's exalting himself into a position of power. In his haughty pride, and in his opposition, he will exalt himself above all forms of religion. You see that there in verse 4. He, he, he exalteth himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped. The book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 11, verse 36. This man is described in this way. And the king shall do according to his will, and he shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and shall speak marvelous things against the god of gods and shall prosper till the indignation be accomplished, for that is determined, or for that that is determined shall be done. You think about it, it was the devil himself that in the very beginning tried to usurp God's power and God's authority. He rebelled against God. He was one of the created beings of God, one of the angels of God, and he tried to observe, he tried to usurp God's power. He says, I will be like the Most High. I want to be in charge. I want power. And of course, now his man, the man of sin, the one that he's in, in, in empowering and indwelling is doing the very same thing. Not, not a big surprise. This man is also sitting and showing in verse 4. He is, he is sitting in God's place so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God. He's appointed himself as a ruler in the place of God. The very location, the temple that was supposed to be reserved for the worship of God. This is God's place, and now he is sitting in God's place. Sitting in God's chair, reserved for him. That's the, the pride and the haughtiness of his spirit. But he's also showing, he's demonstrating himself as God. Now, hold your place here. Go to Matthew chapter 24. I want you to, to see a couple of other texts just so that you can connect these dots when you read these, um, as you read your Bible. Matthew 24, there's two other uh, parallel passages to this in Luke, uh, and Mark and Luke as well. But Matthew 24, Jesus is talking about the future events that are going to take place, and specifically he's speaking to a Jewish audience, to his people, and that's important to understand. In Matthew 24, verse 15, So Jesus is describing what is going to take place. And, and just for your point of reference, what is going to take place, and I believe we'll see this in a second, what's going to take place is roughly about the halfway point of the period of time, the tribulation period of time, those seven years in which God is judging this earth. Verse 15, this event, he says, When ye therefore see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, uh, stand in the holy place, Whoso readeth, let him understand. Then let them which are in Judea flee into the mountains. Let him which is on the housetop not come down to take anything out of his house. Neither let him that which is in the field return back to take his clothes. And woe unto them that are with child, and to them that give suck in those days. But pray that your flight be not in winter, neither on the Sabbath day. For then shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, no, nor ever shall be and except those days be shortened, there should no flesh be saved. 
But for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. Jesus, to his Jewish audience, was telling them, if you see this, if you're alive to see this, you see a man entering into the temple, the abomination of desolation, a man who sets himself up as God, a man who demands the worship of God, you better run for the mountains. And we know from from, uh, the book of Revelation, it's at this point in time, that the Antichrist, this man setting himself as God, is going to turn on the Jewish people and turn all of his wrath and indignation and judgment upon them. Uh, Flip over to Revelation chapter 13. This is how this event is described in the book of Revelation. Look in Revelation 13. We'll read from verse 5 down to verse number 8. Revelation 13. And here's where we... We see, as well as in the book of Daniel, where we see when this is going to take place. Verse number 5. And there was given unto him a mouth, speaking great things and blasphemies. And power was given unto him to continue forty and two months. There's that three and a half years. And he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God, to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle and them that dwell in heaven. And it was given unto him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And power was given to him over all kindreds and tongues and nations. And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him, whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So at the beginning of that seven years, uh, this Antichrist, this man of sin, will appear on the scene. He will be the man bringing peace. He will be everyone. He will be the one that everyone lauds. Everyone's like, wow, he's amazing. And then he's going to set himself at this three and a half year period of time. He's going to set himself up as God. He's going to demand worship. He's going to turn his ire and his, and, and his focus, his fire upon the saints of God and also the people of God. God has told us all of this is going to take place. He's going to oppose and exalt, and he's going to sit and show that himself, he is God. This is going to happen. And what you believe about whether or not this is going to take place has an impact today. What you believe about what the future holds and what is going to take place will have an impact on how you respond emotionally to what happens in your life today. This is important, and Paul corrects their understanding. But then he launches in in verses 6 through 12, and specifically in verse 7, he references the mystery of iniquity. This mystery of iniquity that even now doth already work. And if it was now in the present time uh, there in Thessalonica working, that means even today it's still working today. So we know this is, this is uh, going on today. And so Paul is reviewing now the mystery of iniquity. He describes the forces of Satan and the forces of evil that are already present and working. And that word mystery in the Bible is something that was previously unknown, but is now sort of unveiled for all of us to see. Here is the mystery of iniquity, and it's, it's working. It's impossible to miss in this world. The only reason why, uh, uh, there, the only reason why this is not happening today The only reason why this wasn't happening there in Thessalonica for these believers, the only reason why there was a delay in these things taking place is that there is a restrainer in the present. And that's what he describes in verse number 6. And now ye know what withholdeth that he might be revealed in his time. For the mystery of iniquity doth already work, only he... Who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. There's a restrainer. Who is this restrainer? What is his identity? In verse 6, he's kind of referred to as an inanimate object. And now you know what withholdeth. But then in verse 7, he's referred to with a personal pronoun, he. So what in the Bible is both referred to as an inanimate object, but then also a person? Well, it is none other than the Holy Spirit. There's a lot of wild explanations as to what this is. I won't take your time. We don't have the time tonight to get into all of those. I didn't know there was, some, there was varied and, and, and kind of strange beliefs as to what this is. To me, it's pretty obvious and pretty clear that this is the Holy Spirit of God. In fact, in Genesis 6 and verse 3, 
Uh, we're told that uh, uh, the Lord said as he's speaking with himself, my spirit shall not always strive with man. And that was in the lead up to the flood. God was seeing the wickedness of man. And he said, you know what? My spirit's not always going to be the one striving, pushing against the evil forces of this world. In other words, that was the spirit's function. To do that very thing. And that leads us to number two, not only his identity, but also his function. There's a couple words in verse six. There's the word withholdeth. There's also in verse seven, the word let. Does anybody play tennis? This is the only place where we kind of see this English word used today. If there is a tennis server, all right, when you serve in tennis, you're, you, the ball that you hit is not allowed to touch the net. But of course, the people who, who play tennis, man, they can, whew, those serves, you know, 100 miles an hour, I think they get them up to. Man, they're so fast. So they can clip that net, and visually, you don't even see a change in trajectory, which is why they have judges, and they actually had, I was reading about this, like a, a high-tech, fancy sort of system to detect vibrations in the net. I mean, it's that sort of thing. And, but if, but there's, then specifically, the judge who's watching the computer system, and then also someone who's watching the net, and you know what they say when the ball hits the net? They say, let. You didn't know they were saying that. You just thought it was somebody making noise. <laughs> but they're actually saying the word let. What does that mean? Well, it means that the ball was somehow hindered. It didn't freely pass over the net. It hit the net. It was, it was um, withholded just a little bit. Its course was altered just a little bit. And that is the illustration that's here. There is the Spirit of God and He is withholding. He's restraining until His time. And that's specifically in verse number 6 that His time until this man of sin be revealed until that point of time. And in, in, order, in other words, God has a specific plan. He's got a timetable. And when it's time, the Spirit will, be, will, will cease His function of withholding, of letting. In other words, this is a scary thought. That the wickedness and the evil that we see in our present time is actually wickedness and evil that is restrained. Did you watch any videos over the past two weeks? You see wickedness. You see evil. And that is wickedness and evil that is actually restrained. In other words, it gets a lot worse. That is the period of time that is coming upon this earth. That is a truth that if we believe it, will change what we do today. We'll change how we approach our lives today. His function is withholding of holding back evil and wickedness. And then we, we see his future being spoken of. One day he's going to be taken out of the way. Now, not taken out of the way, or not, yeah, not taken out, but taken out of the way, right? And there's, there's a difference. It's not like he's been overcome. It's not like he's been defeated, and so now there's a free course. No, he's just stepped out of the way. He's submissive to the Father's will, removing himself out of the way, and now wickedness and evil have a free course. Now, in other words, this, the wheels... Of, of, of civilization, if we can call that, the wheels that are set in motion by the God of this world that are presently being prevented, are presently being held back, those wheels can now move forward. And that's exactly what is going to take place. Part of this departure, no doubt, by the Holy Spirit, is the departure of the saints. Because if you know Him as your Savior, the moment in time in which you were born again. The Holy Spirit took up occupancy and residency in your heart. And in this room, as many believers as we might have in this room, there is the kingdom of God, the rulership of God in each of our hearts, and the presence of the Holy Spirit of God. 
We then, as the church of God, as Lehigh Valley Baptist Church, those of us who are members of this church, we are the body of Christ. In other words, God is working to bring himself glory unto him, be glory in the church as we minister and seek to minister. We are his hands. We, we are his feet. We are his, his eyes. We are what he uses to function in this world. And we look forward to the hope that one day we're out of here. We're gone. The rapture's coming. We're gone. And with us, those that indwelt, or he, I should say, that indwelt our very hearts. And I think I, I read this as an illustration just to help us understand. It's not as though he will not be operative in this world. He will be. He'll be at work. But a way to think about it and a way to view that is that he'll leave this earth in the same way that he came at Pentecost. We describe the Holy Spirit's coming and indwelling at Pentecost. That doesn't mean he was not operative and active in this world before them in the Old Testament times, in the, in the, the times of the Gospels. All right? But there was, a, there was a visible change in how that all operated. It's the same thing here. There's a change in how it operates. There, there will be people who will hear the Gospel for the first time and get saved. God's plan is not in any way thwarted by the Spirit not being here. But his ministry of withholding the mechanized wheels of the God of this world will be taken out of the way. And Satan will finally be able to do what he's wanted to do all along. And think about this. This will finally, not only does it free up Satan, it also frees up man. It frees up man to have everything that man wants. God will finally get out of the way. And you know, there are people, there, perhaps there's even people who sit in this very room who in your heart of hearts just long for God to get out of the way. Let me go do what I want to do. Stop restricting me. Stop telling me things I can't do and I shouldn't do. Let me do what I want. God, get out of my way. And one day you will get your wish. And you know what happens as a result? When God gets out of the way, it will bring upon the world the worst possible period of time there has ever been. Which, believer, ought to cause us to fear when we're fighting, we're scraping against God to get what we want. Sometimes the biggest judgment is God giving us exactly what we want. Be careful. Be careful. He's the restrainer. And he is going to be moved out of the way, which will pave the way in verse number 8. For the revelation then in the future. And then shall that wicked be revealed. Whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth. And destroy with the brightness of his coming. Even him whose coming is after the working of Satan. With all powers and signs and lying wonders. And with all deceivableness of unrighteousness. There's a revelation. He's going to be revealed. Now believer get this. I like this. What, is, what are we told about very you know, right out of the gate, when he's talking about that wicked one, you know, that one who's going to be the embodiment of sin, the one who's going to be uh, uh, the human face on the devil's will for this very earth, before he describes anything about him, anything about what he's going to do, all of the details of, of, of the things that he's going to foist on this world, we're told very first, right out of the gate, about his end. His days are numbered. Then shall that wicked be revealed whom the Lord shall consume. We went from here to here. We need to understand there's an end. There's an end to this. God has already determined that end and what that end will be. This man will be consumed. He'll be used up. He'll be destroyed. And the, the instrument that will destroy him, that will consume him, is the spirit of God's very mouth. The spirit of his mouth. In Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 4, the Bible says, But with righteousness shall he judge the poor and reprove with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked. 
If you look in Revelation 19, this is a familiar passage. I'll, I'll just read it to you. Here's how the book of Revelation describes exactly what this is. This, this idea of the end being, being destroyed with the spirit of his mouth. In Revelation 19, verse number 11, it says, I saw heaven open. Behold, a white horse, and see, he that, had, that sat upon him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness doth he judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture, dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which, followed in, or which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And here, verse 15. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. What comes out of his mouth is his very word. Do you realize that you have a copy of that very word in your lap? You have access to the sword of the Spirit, the sword of the Spirit of his mouth. You have it. You have access to it. And that is the very thing that is going to be used. He won't even have to lift a sword. He won't even have to lift a finger. The very words coming out of his mouth will so decimate and destroy and consume this man, this Antichrist, before he even sees what com- what's coming to him. This is his end. He'll be consumed with the spirit of his mouth, but he'll also be destroyed. And this is an interesting description. Let your imagination go wild with this one. He's going to be destroyed with the brightness of his coming. In other words, the splendor, the radiance, the glory, the light that is who Jesus Christ is. That light, the light that comes when he appears. And we have not seen this ourselves yet. I'm thankful that one day in our glorified bodies we'll be able to see how bright and how glorious and how much splendor and radiance God, the holy God, has. But when this man, the Antichrist, sees it, it's just like there's no sunglasses that will prepare him for that. He'll be destroyed when God finally reveals himself as who he is. This is that same brightness that, that he protected Moses from when Moses said, I want to, I want to see you. Well, I'll pass by, but I'll, I'll make sure you're guarded and you're protected so you don't see the whole thing because it'll, 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 it'll burn you up. It'll consume you. And Moses just saw the, the after effects of it. And he's described as coming down from the mountain and is, because he got that close, which wasn't all that close uh, to begin with, but because he had gotten close, his face was shining and the people said, put something, put a blanket over your head, we can't stand it. That's the brightness, that's the splendor. And this is the splendor that will destroy and consume this man of sin before he knows what hits him. That's his end. And we need to be reminded he has an end before we're told about some of the things that he does, and specifically his coming, verse 9, even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all powers and signs and lying wonders. Just like the working of Satan, you notice that he's going to be described as displaying some power. He's described as displaying some supernatural signs and with wonders. These things will be miraculous. These things will be remarkable. But don't miss the word lying in the middle there. These are lying wonders. As verse 10 says, this is deceivableness of unrighteousness. With it, he is going to deceive. Revelation chapter 13 and verse 3 describes it this way. One of these signs, it says, I saw one of his heads as it were wounded to death and his deadly wound was healed and all the world wondered after the beast. There's those signs. There's that power. There's the lying wonders. And they worshiped the dragon, which gave power unto the beast. And they worshiped the beast saying, who is like unto the beast and who is able to make war with him? There'll be some things that he does. There'll be some accomplishments that he's able to do that no man before him has been able to do. He'll be able to bring some peace. He'll be able to finally resolve this conflict, which is even 
taking over our news cycle even today, which no man has been able to solve. He'll be able to solve it for a very, very short time, I should say. But he does solve it for a time. This is his coming. He's going to deceive people. Now, we already know the truth. We know about this deception. So certainly everyone who is in this room, there's no way we could be deceived because it's right here in black and white. If we saw it, we would recognize it, right? Well, that leads us very quickly and lastly tonight to the response in the present. Verse 10. He's going to appear with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish because they received not the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this cause, God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie, that they all might be damned who believed not the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. This is the response, the response in the present, the response that could very well be taking place in this room at this very moment. This response by those who receive not the love of the truth and those who believe not the truth Those who had access, but no acceptance. Those who were close to the truth, but they chose to deny the truth. And it's right here that we get to our second implication. Because not only is what we believe about what's going to happen in the future affect our response and even our emotional response to distresses and trials and troubles today, but the second implication is this. That your response, my response to the truth in the present will determine my response to the events in the future. This is huge. This is incredible. There is no, I'll see it when it's coming. There is no, I'll figure it out. I have all the truth. I've been taught. And so when my second chance comes, I'll be ready to take it. I'm sorry, there is no second chance. Now, you probably had plenty of second chances here and now, but you get what I'm trying to say. You notice the, there's three of these sort of statements through these three, verse, three, three verses. The first statement is this. Refusing to receive in the present equals deception in the future. He says that in verse 10. Because they receive not the love of the truth that they might be saved, they are going to be deceived this deceivableness of unrighteousness will overtake them. So in other words, refusing to receive in the present equals deception in the future. Your love, and I like that word, it's just inserted in there. They didn't receive the love of the truth. Your love, what you are pursuing in life, what you love in life, What you're after in life, your love in the present will determine what you love in the future. It will determine your eternal destiny, what you love right now. Is it important what you believe about what's going to happen? You could say, well, I believe what the Bible is saying is going to happen. Well, do you love the truth? Have you received the truth? Have you been saved? Well, no, then you don't. Your action in the present proves Your lack of belief. Refusing to receive in the present equals deception in the future. And we're told why this is the case. Jesus did. He told us, John 3.19, this is the condemnation. This is why we're condemned as lost individuals. Because light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. They don't love the truth They love their sin. And while we're being honest and and being open, there are many times we don't love the truth. We love our sin. We don't like when somebody gets the, the light of God's word and shines it in our hearts and confronts us. We like to think, well, you know, yeah, I was a sinner back then, but now I'm saved, everything's good. No, there's there's still sin there. We need the light of God's word to illuminate that. But those who do not love the truth. They've not received the love of the truth. They love darkness rather than light. This deceivableness of unrighteousness will deceive them. Refusing to receive in the present equals deception in the future. The second 
statement that's here. Refusing to believe in the present equals delusion in the future. This is verse 11. And for this cause, God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie. They refuse to believe in the present. And that's referred to even in verse 12 as well. And so in the future, they will believe a lie. If you're sitting here in this auditorium and you are hearing this and you you have understood the gospel, you've understood your need to be saved, when all these events take place, because you refuse to believe in the present, you will be deluded in the future. You'll go right along with all of this. And the whole time, you will be insisting that you are right. The whole time, you will believe you're getting exactly what you want. And the exact opposite is the case. In verse 12, there's another equation. And that is this. Pleasure in unrighteousness in the present equals damnation in the future. That they all might be damned who believe not the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. And ultimately, the reason why we reject salvation, that guilty sinners reject the free offer of salvation, is because we have pleasure in our unrighteousness and we refuse to give it up. We might look at salvation. We might hear about salvation. We might uh, hear about the fact that we can be saved from eternity in hell. We might hear about the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay the price of our sin. And he offers salvation as a free gift. But we know in order to receive that, we have to be willing to say that he is Lord Jesus Christ. And we don't like that. If I could get all of that and still keep my sin, we'd be great. Except it doesn't work that way. You have pleasure in unrighteousness today, you will experience damnation in the future. This, these, we should say, are the implications of your eschatology. What do you believe? Because if you truly believe what God reveals to us, and I know not all of the details are here. Paul chose not to give all of the details. Some of us, you know, we like it all laid out. What's going to happen first and what's going to happen second? And there's this and there's that. He doesn't lay all that out. He just tells us what we need to know. This is what you need to know. This is generically, this is what's going to happen. This is what's going to take place. And if you truly believe what God reveals to you about the future, it will impact your life today. If these Thessalonian believers truly believed what God said, they would not be soon shaken. They would, they would not be troubled in their mind. It would have an impact in their emotional response to the events of today. And yes, even an emotional response to the trials and troubles that they were facing. It even has an impact there. Because what we believe will happen in the future has a remarkable impact and what is happening in the present. Along with that, what your response to the truth is in the present will determine what your response is to the events of the future. Now for the believer tonight, you say, I know, I, can, I remember a time when I was saved, I was born again, I gave my life to the Lord Jesus Christ, I accepted the free gift of salvation for you, for us, we know the end. We know it's going to take place. What's going to happen with Hamas and Israel and all the powers of the Middle East? We kind of already know the end. Do we have to be afraid and concerned that the, the world's going to burn up with global warming and climate change? Not really. Because we know the end. God's told us the end. There's no need to be agitated. There's no reason to be alarmed, to be fearful. Oh no, what's going to take place? You know the end. You can be secure as you walk out these doors. You know what's going to take place in the end and you know that God is not going to forget about you. You're looking not for the day of the Lord. No, 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 no. You're looking for the day of Christ. You're looking, you're listening for the trumpet because one day 
If you believe him, you know him, you're going to be raptured out of here. God is going to take care of you. Is there anything to be agitated and alarmed about? Really? Is there? Not if we really believe it. The problem is sometimes we don't really believe it because it doesn't affect our lives. For those of you that are lost, and I'm sure there are some in this room, this is your chance. Strong delusion is coming your way. And a delusion so strong that you will go willingly, gleefully, into your own destruction, all the while believing you are getting your way and you're getting everything you want. This is just how Satan works. He does it even today. You're whistling to the slaughterhouse and enjoying the trip. That's sad. It ought, to, it ought to wake you up. It ought to get your attention. It ought to shake you up, but here's the problem. You don't really believe it because it has no impact on your life. This is your chance. He hasn't come yet. Do you love the truth? Are you going to respond to the truth? Nothing stands in between you and salvation other than you. Yourself. It's time to seek God. The clock is ticking. Your time is running out. Today is the day of salvation. I can't guarantee you tonight. I can't even guarantee, you know, meeting tomorrow and doing a Bible study tomorrow. I can't guarantee that. I don't know. If you know the truth, the time to respond is today. It all comes down to what do you believe? There are serious implications to your eschatology.